Christmas. We uh, used to have a guy here who was a songwriter, and one of the lyrics from his songs was, uh, All my life I've been waiting. And statistically, that is partially true. Uh, we spend a huge chunk of our time waiting, and a lot of our waiting is paired with some sort of annoyance. Some researchers have determined that we spend six months of our lives um, sitting at stoplights. Think about that. Six months of your life will be at a stoplight. Another six months will be uh, spent waiting in lines. And if you go to Disney World, then that increases to 10 years of your life will be spent (laughs) waiting in lines. Another 10 years of your life will be spent on hold with the cable company because your call is very important to them, (laughs) evidently. Um, A lot of our waiting also is tied to dissatisfaction. We want a faster phone. We want a faster uh, processor. We want a faster time to get into shape or to uh, learn the material or graduate or get loans paid off. And so as a general rule, we don't like waiting for anything. So today, I want to look at a couple of senior citizens who waited their whole life for one thing. This is a series called Jesus Revealed, and to prepare our hearts for Christmas, we've talked about shepherds and stargazers, and today, Jesus Revealed to Senior Citizens. There are multiple senior citizens in the, the early part of Jesus' life in the birth story, and uh, we could have talked about um, Elizabeth and Zechariah. Elizabeth would give they were an old couple in, uh, in Luke chapter 1. They find out they're going to have a baby. And then when they find out they're going to have a baby, the, the tabloids blow up because they're really, really old. Okay? So Elizabeth would give birth to John. And John would become John the Baptist. He was a cousin of Jesus. And he was to prepare the way for Jesus. And, uh, and when Zechariah heard the news that they were going to have a baby after all of these decades, because he was also quite old. He couldn't believe it either. And so as a result of his disbelief, he couldn't talk, literally, for nine months. Think about that, Richie. Say, this is Richie and Kirsten, and they just have a brand new baby, baby Jude. So think about that. Yeah, that is definitely an awe moment. So... Think about that, not being able to speak for, for nine months. That would have been interesting, huh? Yeah, so, uh, what? <laughs> Make Kirsten happy. Um, cool story, but today I want to talk about uh, Elizabeth and, and uh, Zachariah. I want to talk about Simeon and Anna. They spent their lives waiting for God to fulfill a promise And what's really cool about these two old people, these senior citizens, is that their waiting did not produce this annoying dissatisfaction, but rather a holy anticipation. So even now, from the the outset of this sermon, uh, that's my prayer for us, a holy anticipation of Jesus being revealed still to and in us, a watchful attentiveness, a, a hoping wondering. In Luke chapter 2, after decades of waiting, today was the day. 
Luke chapter 2, verse 22. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, meaning Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So in in keeping with Jewish law, Joseph and Mary brought this baby, Jesus. He was 40 days old-ish at this point. And they made the eight-mile trek to Jerusalem. When he was eight days old, he would have been circumcised and named. And now was this time of consecration or devotion of the baby to the Lord. And that included, uh, as an act of worship, that included an offering. That included an offering of of a sacrifice of a lamb. Uh, Or, if you were poor sacrifice of a couple of pigeons or doves. And so Mary and Joseph, we see that they are poor. They bring a couple of birds to the temple. And that was what was expected. And in doing what was expected, the last thing they expected happened. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. Into the the story enters Simeon, and his name means God has heard, which was really fitting. And there are four descriptions of Simeon. The first is that he was righteous, and the second is that he was devout. And righteous is the way that he was with people. The way that he helped and served his outward expression of faith, how he treated others with justice. Devotion, devoted, is how he was with God. His inward expression of faith and love. Jesus, later in his ministry, would boil down all of the commandments to two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. For Simeon, the second flowed out of the first. He was so passionate about God. And that passion and that love for God spilled over into the way he was with the people around him. He was righteous and he was devout. The third thing about Simeon is that he was waiting for the consolation or comfort or salvation of Israel. He he knew the Scripture. He knew the prophecies. He knew that there was a a promised Messiah. And historically, kind of contextually, Rome was in charge, right? And so the Jewish people were under the oppression of Rome. And before that, they'd been under the oppression of Babylon and Assyria. And for decades and for generations and for hundreds of years, they had been under the yoke of someone else. And so this promise of the coming Messiah was a big deal. And he knew the the scripture, Isaiah 9. says, these people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged, expanded the nation and increased its joy. You have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, 
mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast. Its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it. That was the promise. And Simeon knew it. He was saturated with these Old Testament prophecies. And so we know that he was waiting for the salvation of Israel, the consolation. He was looking for a Messiah. Everyone else was looking for a political Messiah, but he was looking for a spiritual Messiah. All right, so this is the fourth thing about Simeon. The Holy Spirit was upon him. Upon him. Prior to the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 8, the Holy Spirit would come upon people. Um, uh, Psalm 51, David prays, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Right? After the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit actually resides in believers. But this is pre-Pentecost. This is, this is when the Holy Spirit would come upon people. And we know that he came upon the Holy Spirit and he, rev- I mean, Holy Spirit came upon Simeon and he revealed to Simeon that Simeon wouldn't die until he saw the Messiah. So he'd been waiting years and years and years and years for what the Holy Spirit promised to be fulfilled. And today was the day. Verse 27, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, in the glory of your people Israel. The parents bring the baby in, and Simeon takes him in his arms, and full of joy, he praises God. He's been waiting for one thing, and now God, in his sovereignty and in his perfect timing, has made good on his promises. So Simeon says, I can die now. I can die in peace. This is what I've been waiting for. And now I have seen him. And just think about that. Think about that. Every day this guy has been going to the temple. Every day he's been living with this promise. You are going to see the Messiah. And today is the day. And he's holding this baby. He says, now I've seen the salvation of God. He'd been hoping upon hope, upon hope, upon hope. And scripture says that God's hope does not disappoint. And so today, today God fulfills that in him. A couple of things about this gospel. The first is that it's an expanded gospel. Everyone was looking for a political savior, but Simeon was looking for a much bigger, a much expanded version of savior, of Messiah. And he says that the gospel is good news for everyone. It is a light for salvation for the Gentiles. It is the glory of the people Israel. And if anybody had been in the temple listening, like over, you know, eavesdropping on that conversation, they would have been shocked 
even though that was the promise from the get-go with the covenant that God made with Abraham, that I am going to to bring this people of Israel together. But it's not just about Israel. It is, I'm going to bless Israel so that they can be a blessing to all nations. You see, from, from the very start, God's promise and God's covenant was for everybody. But at some point, Israel had turned in on itself. It was all about self-protection and self-preservation rather than blessing. So in Simeon, God is renewing the covenant he made with Abraham. He says, this light, this light is for all people. This is for Gentiles as well as Jews. Isaiah 49, I will make you a light for the Gentiles that you will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And then this, Paul says this in Ephesians 2. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off. Anybody resonate with that? Do you ever feel far off, away from God? You who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You've been welcomed in. You have an invitation to come close because of the cross, because of the blood of Jesus. For he is our peace who has made us both, meaning Jews and Gentiles, one, and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Well, verse 33, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. They just, it's like, are you kidding me? What? This isn't what we expected today. And then Simeon blessed them. And then he turned to Mary. And he said this. He says, this child is destined to cause the falling in rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So he prophesies about the expansion of God's kingdom and expansion of his, of his invitation to salvation, right? But then he talks about the costliness of that gospel, says, this child is destined, is appointed. From the beginning of time, this is what has been foretold. This is what was going to happen. The cross did not just happen by circumstance to Jesus. It was planned from the very start. Ephesians 3, this is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Jesus Hebrews says, his work was finished even before the beginning, the foundations of the world. (laughs) So this is part of God's sovereignty. This is part of God's big picture. And Simeon said, he's destined, he's appointed, but he's appointed to cause the falling and the rising of many. Many will be brought to a, a kind of a crossroads. And for some, it will mean collapse, and some, it will mean resurrection. For some, it will mean a receiving of grace, and for some, it will mean a rejection of that grace. This Jesus, this baby, will cause that. Let me put a couple verses around that. Isaiah 8, the Lord God said, look, I've laid in 
Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure, a sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshakable. He's talking about Jesus. And then 1 Peter says, Jesus becomes a stone that causes some men to stumble and a rock that causes them to fall. Simeon's holding this baby, this little 40-day-old baby. He says, this baby is going to cause some to stumble and fall. And what was true then is true now. That Jesus is either this cornerstone of what we build our lives on, or he's a stone that we stumble over. We either receive him or reject him. And Simeon says that when he's just a baby. He said he's also a sign that will be spoken against, you know. And we've already seen some signs in this whole series. The shepherds were told by the angels, this, this will be a sign to you. You'll, you'll find the baby wrapped in, in cloths and lying in a manger. And the wise men saw a sign in the sky, the star that they followed. The sign is a visible affirmation of God's declared intentions. It's a cool definition. A visible affirmation of God's declared intentions. And so Simeon says this sign will, this baby is a sign. That sign will not just be good news to shepherds and stargazers and senior citizens and Jews and Gentiles who believe in him. But the sign will also be spoken against. It will invoke hostility. And the thoughts of hearts will be revealed. You see, up until Jesus, religion was primarily about what you did. It was about behavior. But with Jesus, Jesus keeps teaching all through his ministry about the heart. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart, our actions move. So Jesus is a whole lot more concerned about our heart than he is about our actions, about our religion. The thoughts of hearts will be revealed because of this baby. And then he turns to Mary and he says, The sword will pierce your own soul as well. She would, would wrestle with what Jesus was saying and what he was doing. You know? Several, a couple times in, in the Gospels, Jesus, Jesus is preaching or Jesus is healing people and Mary and her other kids come and they try to, to rescue Jesus from himself. People were saying, this, your, your boy's crazy. You better go do something about that, you know? And he would, she, she went to try to retrieve him and Jesus said, really, who are my brothers and sisters and who's my mom? People of God, you, you, you are. My, you're my family. At some point, she got it. At some point, it, it clicked together. And definitely at the cross, she knows. She knows that this promised Messiah, she's looking at him on the cross. She's seeing her boy bleed. 
A sword will wound your soul as well, Mary. So this old guy takes this baby in his arms and he, he prophesies, he speaks some amazing words that this is the one who will rescue humanity. All of y'all. But this comes with a cost. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming, coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna was a, a prophetess. She was very old. She had been a widow for 60 years. She knew about suffering. She was from the tribe of Asher in Luke the doctor who's writing this is really a stickler for details. So he throws that one in. By the way, this, this old lady, she's from the tribe of Asher. And for Jewish readers, they would know that the tribe of Asher, it, it, if you were to kind of put the tribes of Israel in order of importance, Asher would be down here somewhere. It was kind of the forgotten tribe. It was the lost tribe. Weakest link in the family, right? How cool is it that this old lady who is like 84 years old, who's been a widow for 60 years, who has um, dealt with all of the social ramifications of being a widow in first century Palestine, which meant that uh, financial security would be really hard to come by. That societal norms, you know, that it, you, you were kind of an outsider. You may or may not be taken care of. There was no welfare plan, right? There was no Medicare. So she had lived in this place of suffering, and she was at the bottom of the rung in terms of her family identity, and yet, God's grace was so prevalent in her life. Every day, she just hung out at the temple. She might have even lived there, right? Worship and, and fasting and prayer marked her every day. So it makes sense that on this particular day, when this particular couple shows up with this particular baby, that she knows who it is. The Holy Spirit reveals to her as well, and she can't shut up about it. So in Simeon, you get the expanse of the gospel, and you get the cost of the gospel. In Anna, you get the sharing of the gospel. For those looking forward to the redemption of Israel, she starts connecting the dots. You have been looking for the wrong kind of Messiah. Here he is. This is the one the prophecies were about. This, is, this baby is the consolation of not just Israel, but all of humanity. And when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, 
They returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom. And the grace of God was upon him. What began as a trip of obedience turned into this awe-filled, incredible time of worship. So that's the story out of Luke chapter 2. But before we go, I want to I pose a couple of questions for us. What are we waiting for? Do we have a kind of expectation that Simeon and Anna had? Do we have this uh, experience of Jesus revealed to us? Are we looking for it? couple of takeaways from this. I, I love this story that uh, they were both waiting. We're so impatient. <laughs> and these old 80-some-year-old people have been waiting day after day, year after year, decade after decade for this moment. And they weren't wasting time waiting. They waited in the presence of of God. They waited with the Holy Spirit. It was a I, I know it when I'll see it kind of expectation. I, I love what we've seen in this whole series that the shepherds and the stargazers and the senior citizens uh, they got to see Jesus. Jesus was revealed to them, as opposed to the religious leaders who should have been knowing, who should have been looking for it, who had been reading these prophecies, but they failed to make the connection. In John 5, he says, Jesus is talking to these religious leaders. He says, you, you diligently study your scripture every single day because you think that by them you will have eternal life. And he says, no, these scriptures, they testify about me. You know the word inside and out, but you don't know the word, is what he's saying. So Jesus has been revealed on the pages of Scripture, but until we receive Jesus, these Scriptures are just religiosity. Jesus wasn't what people were expecting. You know, he looked like every other baby. He didn't have a, a halo around him, you know. Contrary to what you see in paintings, every parent thinks their baby is beautiful, and this baby is beautiful. But every parent thinks that way. But Isaiah 53 says that there's nothing exceptional about the way Jesus looked, and there was nothing exceptional about his name. Lots of babies were named Jesus. Jesus grows up, and Philip says, hmm, he's from Nazareth. He's the Messiah from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? The people of Nazareth said, hmm, isn't he Joseph's kid? And then the religious leaders, after Jesus fed 5,000 people with a kid's lunch, they said, could you show us a sign? It's like, hmm. (laughs) 
Simeon and Anna had eyes of expectation. They had a vision of faith that was enhanced by the Holy Spirit that was an overflow of a life of worship. Each day, they experienced the presence of God the Father, and they experienced the presence of God the Spirit, which enabled them to recognize God in the flesh. In the proximity and intimacy with God in the moment-to-moment, day-to-day, God gave, gave them the grace to see the one through whom the promises would be fulfilled. So they left the day with joy, and they were satisfied, and they were affirmed of God's faithfulness that he actually loves them. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, I keep asking for this, for you all. I keep asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you may grow in your knowledge of God, not just book knowledge, but experiential knowledge. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope that he's given to those he's called. I pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power to those who believe him. Nothing is more beautiful. Nothing is more important. Nothing is more worthy of our lives, our time, our money, our relationships, our devotion, our thought life, our love than Jesus. Jesus is the only one who truly satisfies. And so this expectation for Jesus to be revealed, Paul's prayer My prayer for us is that the eyes of our heart would be opened so we would see, so we would know, so that we would embrace, so that we would receive. So that's the first takeaway from this, is an attentiveness in our waiting. And the second one, before we go, is just this word, consolation. It's not a word that we use a lot. In fact, um, the first time I ever heard the word consolation was when I was little back in Oklahoma. And I grew up at this children's home um, where my parents worked. And we had a couple of things each year that was kind of the highlight, you know. It was way out in the sticks, and so we, we didn't have a lot going for us in terms of entertainment. But twice a year, uh, over Christmas break, um, a bunch of college people would invade our space. And one was a busload of people from Purdue Campus House. And every year, Campus House would bring down this bus of, of you all. And for three or four days, you would cut wood, and you would live in the houses with the kids. And that was, a, that was like a highlight for us. So when I was eight years old, I knew all about Campus House. I loved Campus House. Isn't that cool? God's sovereignty at work there. The other, so that was before Christmas. After Christmas, every year, we would have this holiday basketball tournament. And it would be a basketball tournament that involved 10 or 12 um, basketball teams from, from Bible colleges around the country. And so they would come for a week of basketball. And I loved basketball. And for, in, in my eyes, these guys were like professionals, you know? I mean, they were, they were huge. They were probably only like 6'3", but in my eyes, they were, they were ginormous. 
And, and they were like our heroes. And so they'd get off the court. And one time this guy, his name was Dudley Rutherford, and he, he was awesome. And he threw me his sweatband. And I didn't care that it smelled bad. I got the sweatband from Dudley Rutherford. You know what I'm saying? Still got it somewhere. I don't know. Anyway, so that was, that was this basketball tournament. It was awesome. Every year, there were like four or five teams that just excelled. And every year, one of those three or four teams won the tournament. Every year, there was also one team that never, ever, ever won a game. Same team. <laughs> exactly. Aw, buddy. That was the prize that they got. Every year, they had the, the trophy presentations, and this team or this team would get first or second, but this team always got the consolation trophy, also known as the Aw, Buddy trophy. <laughs> and, and when I was small growing up, I just equated that with they got the loser trophy, <laughs> they got the pity trophy. But what they really got was, I am so glad you're here. And you played your hearts out. And you, that didn't go so well. <laughs> but we absolutely love you and delight in you. And we want to give you this, not this loser trophy, not this awe buddy trophy, but this embrace. That's the idea of consolation. It actually means comfort. And the word in Greek actually goes even beyond discomfort. It goes toward uh, praying for comfort and praying with, with comfort. Mm. I wish I had more time because I would turn us to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Because in five verses, this word for consolation shows up nine times. And it says in verse 3 that God is the God of all consolation. And then in verse 4, he says, we, Paul says, we are able to Console others with this consolation that we ourselves have received. And so there is a reverberation to consolation that happens when we receive the comfort of God through his Holy Spirit. We are then able to comfort others with the same comfort that we've been given. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, that you are in a key position to actually console others who are going through the same thing that you've been through. You have the Holy Spirit. If you have received Jesus, you have the gift of the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit teaches you, and that Holy Spirit reveals things through his word to you, and that Holy Spirit also comforts you, but he empowers you to comfort others. And so this word Consolation keeps going and going and going. In verse 5 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 
it says, just as the sufferings of Christ are abundant for us, so also our consolation is abundant through Christ. Simeon said, I've been waiting my whole life for this moment, for the consolation of Israel, the consolation of all humanity. His life, Anna's life, was known by its suffering. Morgan Guyton says, suffering by itself is meaningless. We do not earn anything or gain anything from it, but Christ's solidarity in suffering on his cross gives us the power to rename our suffering and claim paraclesis, consolation. In the midst of it, when we have no other reason to do so. Isaiah 40, comfort my people, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. 61 of Isaiah, he has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come, that hope does not disappoint. It goes one step further. Jesus gave a name to this Holy Spirit in John 14. You know what he called him? Paraclete. Consoler. John 14 says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. That in post-Pentecost, post-Acts 2, the Holy Spirit doesn't come and go. The Holy Spirit stays. And the Holy Spirit consoles, comforts. So the gospel is still for everyone, and we still can accept it or reject it. It can be the foundation of our lives, or it can become a stumbling block. And the Holy Spirit still reveals. He reveals through the word of God, but he also prompts us, just like he did Simeon, just like he did Anna, He prompts us to pray. He prompts us to give. He prompts us to serve. He prompts us to speak. And as we are devoted to God, as we are in proximity to him and attentive to him in perpetual worship through your study, through your finals, through your time with your family, through your work, through your relationships, that all of life is lived in worship to God. As we become less self-absorbed and more God-absorbed, we will not only get a front row seat to what God is doing in our lives, but we will actually get in on it. Yeah. So that's my prayer. I want to end. You guys, Ralphie, can come on up. Um, I, w- I want us to stand. I, don't, I just want to read Isaiah 53. This is just a wrap it up. Put a bow on it. Here we go. Isaiah 53. Who believes what we've heard and seen? Who would have thought? Who, who would have thought 
God's saving power would look like this? Who could have dreamed it? The servant, he's talking about Jesus, grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him. Nothing to cause us to, to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over. A man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. And we looked down on him. We thought he was scum. But the fact is, it was our pains he carried. Our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures. But it was our sins that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him. Our sins. He took the punishment, and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. We're all like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing. We've gone our own way. And God has piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong, on him. He was beaten. He was tortured. He didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to the slaughter, like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in silence. Did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought for his own welfare, beaten bloody for the sins of my people. They buried him with the wicked, even though he'd never heard a soul or said one word that wasn't true. Still, it's what God had in mind all along. To crush him with pain. The, the plan was that he give himself as an offering for sin so that he'd see life come from it. Life, life, and more life. And God's plan will deeply prosper through him. Out of that terrible travail of soul, he'll see that it's worth it. He'll see that it's worth it. And he'll be glad he did it. Through what he experienced, my righteous one, my servant, will, many, will make many righteous ones. As he himself carries the burden of their sins. Therefore, God says, I'll reward him extravagantly with the best of everything, the highest honors, because he looked death in the face and didn't flinch, because he embraced the company of the lowest. He took on his shoulders the sin of the many. He took up the cause of all the black sheep. <laughs> so, Father, thank you for taking up the cause through Jesus, through this baby Jesus of us, the black sheep, the outcast the lost and forgotten, the broken, the hurting, the suffering, the lost and disillusioned. That in all of our knowledge and in all of our opportunities and in all of our wealth and privileges, we come to you as needy, needing your consolation needing your comfort, needing your salvation. It, it is mind-blowing to put ourselves in the place of this old guy holding the God of the universe in his arm, knowing that this was exactly what he was waiting for. Oh, I want to circle back around to the consolation trophy one more time. 
Because I feel like sometimes that's a barrier for us to really come to Jesus, is that we've seen the consolation prize as the prize for losers, right? In, in one sense, that's absolutely right. <laughs> but that is a huge affront to our pride and to our, uh, our accomplishments and to our achievements. And some of you have never gotten a consolation prize in your life. So just to reframe that, that it's actually a, a trophy, a gift of embrace and of inclusion and of come close and let me love on you. And, and it, is, uh, it is offensive to our ego. But when we break through that barrier, on the other side of that door is this wide expanse of God's salvation. So my sense is that some of us need to just kind of step through that door and kind of move past this Jesus is for losers into this wide open expanse of Jesus is for me.